Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. Um, today, we continue with our next to last sermon in our Surrender series. We've been doing this for, I think this is week seven now. We end on Easter, coming up next Sunday. And um, today we're going to be talking about surrendering your wrath, your wrath. Um, and so I don't know if you have wrath. I don't know if you knew you had wrath coming in, but we all have it. And um, it's sort of probably an appropriate thing. Palm Sunday, we don't have palm branches for you today. Uh, we're not going to be going through the triumphal entry. Maybe next year we'll get there. Um, it kind of goes back and forth what we do on these days and whether we observe kind of the, the liturgical holiday or whether we kind of skirt around it. Um, but it's a good day because Jesus was entering Jerusalem. Why? Well, because he was going to take the cross for the forgiveness of sins, for the, the, the forgiveness of sins. But what was that really about? Well, the wrath of God was going to be poured out upon man because of sin, because sin had broken us from God. Sin required wrath. It requires retributive justice. And so Jesus' entry into Jerusalem is about the beginning of surrendering wrath. And so we're going to talk about that in a different light today, but it's kind of all connected. I wanted you to see that. Um, I actually want to start, I don't know if this makes sense, we're jumping all over the place. We're going to start with something different. Um, I don't know if you know this, I don't know if you're alive in the year 2023, but we live in a little bit of an oversensitive culture, okay? You don't have to agree. If you're a little offended by that, maybe you're being a little sensitive, just relax. (laughs) I would call it unparalleled sensitivity. Um, In 2018, there was an article in The Atlantic that said, I'm going to read it so I don't get it wrong, 80% of Americans believe that political correctness is a real problem, profound problem in our country. And you go, okay, well, 80%, I think I know who those people are. Three quarters of people under the age of 30 said political correctness is a profound problem in our country. So young people, just as much as old people, all the people. In 2021, a Pew Research Group, they released something that said 57% of Americans feel that Americans are too easily offended, which I liked that study because it was basically 57% of Americans were offended that people were so easily offended. Those people are so easily offended, I can't believe them. Um, So you hear about cancel culture. We live in a cancel culture. Uh, This is the fear, maybe, of an old tweet resurfacing. I mean, this happened a couple times. You know, like a baseball player would get drafted, and eight years before that, when he was 12, he tweeted something insensitive. And they'd be like, well, you can't can't get that guy anymore. Like, did you hear what he said when he was 12? And you're like, you're 12. You don't have any idea what you're doing. Um, And yet, people have this fear. And as things change quickly, we're in a dynamic world, right? There's changing things all the time. What do you call this? What do you say about that? How does this work? What about that diagnosis? It didn't even exist five years ago. Now it's real. People have real anxiety over what words to use. This is a real thing. As I was doing research in this, this is an actual thing, and it it doesn't fall on ideological lines or political lines. It's just like a sort of a universal. People are a little bit afraid. What do I call this disability or this race or this diagnosis or for this condition. Well, how, do I, how do I use words that are respectful of that? Because I feel like the words that existed when I was little, don't, those aren't the right words now, but the words from three years ago, those aren't it either. It's a problem. People feel like they can't keep up. Um, I would say as someone who talks in public regularly, recorded, that then gets put on the internet, I'm 
painfully aware that I am one careless remark from having people outside on the sidewalk protesting us because we live in that sort of place. Everything is a debate because everyone gets to have an opinion, and everyone's always had an opinion. Let's not get this confused. Everyone's always had an opinion, but now everyone's opinion is public. Social media has allowed for everybody to be public, and so anger begins to rise as you're now aware of opinions you didn't need to know about previously. So anger rises and hearts hardened and walls go up. No matter where you land on any number of viewpoints, this is what we're kind of getting to, you now have limitless opportunity to become a victim if it helps your cause. The internet is a 24-hour drive-through for outrage-stoking opposition material. If you would like to be a victim, you can be a victim. You can find someone who opposes you, often with violent rhetoric. So, in this culture, there is something that has been uh, called harm inflation. It's an actual academic concept. Nick Haslam, um, a Melbourne PhD psychologist, in a 2020 paper in the Europe European Review of Social Psychology, he, he said this, we have an ever-increasing sensitivity to harm. Although conceptual change is inevitable and often well-motivated, concept creep, that's his big term, concept creep, runs the risk of pathologizing everyday experience and encouraging a sense of virtuous but impotent victimhood. What? He's saying concept creep. There's always a new ism. There's always a new level of the ism. There's always a new level of this spectrum or that diagnosis or this condition or this feeling or this. He's saying there's, a, there's this, this creep in the concepts. We have new names for everything. And he said the risk of this, what he's trying to say, is it doesn't result in a safer society with less harm. It just results in more people feeling harmed because everyone now has a way to name the harm they feel. And he says the result of everybody feeling more harmed is it's we're less powerful to do anything about it. He would say it this way, if everyone has a diagnosis, yours isn't as special as it used to be. We have a friend who is, uh, she would say she's a neurodivergent mother. Have you heard this term, neurodivergent? There's neurotypical, I think normally. My brain works normally. And there's neurodivergent, my brain works differently. Divergent, that's all it is. And she would say, I'm a, I'm a neurodivergent mother. So all the mom blogs didn't help me, so I started my own. She became an influencer, she's great. It actually works for her because she is, she thinks differently. She has a different thing, and I don't need to go into what her thing is, but it's different. What's interesting, though, is what started as neurotypical versus neurodivergent, and this is not scientific, this is anecdotal, observational, there are more and more and more things that qualify as neurodivergent. To the point that neurodivergence has become the new neurotypical, right? If everybody is neurodivergent, then divergence is typical, and we no longer have divergence. We have to come up with a new, and so the concept creep, this is what he's saying. Concept creep means if, well, if everybody's now typical, I gotta find a new way to stand out, or to get help, or to, and this is like practical problems for some real people have practical issues getting true help, because everybody's got a thing now. If everyone is a victim, your victimization gets diminished, and we have true, real victims that are getting overlooked because everybody's a victim now. The problem for us, and why this matters for us, is we surrender our wrath. If everyone gets to be a victim, we begin to lose our sympathy for others. We ask questions like, yeah, but what about me? And in focusing more on ourselves, we become less likely to engage in the difficult work of forgiveness and reconciliation. Because I'm hurt too. This matters for us, first, that we understand the world we live in and the way that the changes of the culture around us change the way we apply our faith. So that's part one. But in a world of more sensitivity and more offense, of more agitation and more conflict, of more victimization, whether real or perceived, it doesn't matter, 
in that world, we have more need for reconciliation. We have more need for forgiveness. But the what about me-ism of our culture, what about me, though, makes that harder. Because you don't forgive, you don't reconcile, you don't do the hard work of surrendering your wrath by focusing on your own pain. That makes it a more difficult journey relationally. This is not just in your Facebook comments, it's in your families, it's in your marriage, it's in the church, it's with your pastor. So how does Jesus suggest we approach the world? Luke 17, verse 1. Jesus said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Okay. First, let's look at what is universal in us. Then we're going to look at where our focus needs to be. And then third, we're going to see what does it mean to surrender my wrath. So, so what is universal in us? Temptation to sin is sure to come. Temptation to sin is, is sure to come. You will have this. This is universal. You do not make it through life without the temptation to sin. The, the Greek word in verse 1 for, stum, uh, for um, this temptation in verse 2 for sin, those, it's both referring to stumbling blocks. So, so you take a picture. Jesus is speaking in a real-world environment. He's not writing this down so we can read it in a sanitized room in 2023. He's, he's speaking in a real-world environment to people. And his temptation to sin will come. Imagine you're on a rocky road. You know, they don't have asphalt-paved streets. He's on a rocky Roman cobblestone road, maybe. And he says... Look, man, the ground is uneven. Stumbling blocks exist all over the place. Going from here to there, you're going to stumble. Everyone is going to fall on uneven ground. Everybody's going to have the ability to stumble. The path of life is rocky. You will slip. But the warning is, hey, guys, the path is treacherous enough. It's uneven enough. It's rocky enough that you don't need to add extra stumbling blocks for your brother and your sister. Maybe don't add more ways for them to mess this up because it's hard enough to get through just normally. Don't become the reason other people stumble. But he's pointing to the universality of life, right? Take a look in the mirror. You are not going to get through unscathed. Every week we can come in here and we can look around and you will see the, 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 the saints together worshiping Jesus. And those saints are all, we're all, depending on how you're, sinners. We're all, we're all sinners that have been made saints by Jesus. It, none of us gets through without stumbling. None of us gets through without the need for mercy. None of us gets through without the need for grace. That's actually a great thing. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, forgiveness starts with truth-telling, with exposure rather than a cover-up of excuses and half-truths. Forgiveness, this path of forgiveness, starts with telling the truth about ourselves and others. Our ability to forgive starts with our own realization of our universal need for forgiveness. You need it, and I need it. So then in verse 3, Jesus says, pay attention to yourselves. And you, you're like, maybe if you're clever on this, you're like, you just said it's not about paying attention. You said we're paying too much attention to ourselves, right? And Jesus just said, pay attention to yourselves. Gotcha, right? Oops. Is Jesus doing a what about me-ism? Is Jesus saying, hey, look into yourself, make sure? I don't think so. We're going to get to it. Before you rebuke sin, he says, before calling other people to repent, pay attention to yourselves. Whether once or 70 times, pay attention to yourselves. 
And it's the opposite of the what about meism that we have in our culture. What he is saying is you fail to notice what's happening inside of you. You fail to notice your need for mercy, your need for forgiveness. You're failing to notice your own flaw and you're busy pointing out the flaws in others. You're failing to notice your own role before you deal with the person you need to deal with. And as a result, because you're not aware of your own brokenness, you don't know how to mend the brokenness between you and others. Your victim status and your bubbling resentment and your growing entitlement, your desire for revenge, pay attention to your heart's inclinations is what he's saying. Recognize your needs so you can recognize the need of others. So he's not saying focus should rest on self at all. We go to the, the writer of Hebrews to see where should our focus rest as we think through this. Hebrews verse, uh, chapter 12, starting in verse 3. Consider him then who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled. The writer of Hebrews says, focus on Jesus. Remember, we talked about Hebrews in the last few weeks. This is, these are people who would come to follow Jesus, but we're kind of slipping back into old ways. And he goes, no, 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 keep your eyes on Jesus. As you're going through this, you have to keep your eyes on Christ. Focus. Whatever the sting of other sins against you, whatever the way that hurts you, wounds you, keep your eyes on Jesus and what he went through and what he's dealt with and what he had to do. And compare your own pain to the pain of Christ. Compare your pain to the cross and the nails and the crown of thorns. It's kind of a call to push back against self-pity. Not that we can't be real about what we're feeling, but to, to that, that place of self-pity where we're no longer able to focus on the relationship. We're simply self-focused. More than that, he says, don't grow weary or faint-hearted. Don't grow weary and faint-hearted. If you keep your eyes on Christ, if you keep your eyes on, on the Lord, then you won't grow weary and faint-hearted. If you simply rely on your own strength, yeah, you'll get tired. Yes, you're, you'll be faint-hearted. Yes, you'll be done. I'm out. It's enough. I'm done. I'm out. I'm finished. Or in the modern language, as I hear people saying, I just can't. And I didn't know that was a complete sentence, and now I hear it a lot. <laughs> I just can't what? Oh, you too? I just can't. And I'm like, oh boy. I don't know what that means. I just can't finish your sentence for you. What do you... Um, get off my lawn. Um, next Sunday, we'll talk about Easter and a resurrection. The spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the spirit that lives inside of you. We say this, but you have to believe this. You have to live this. The spirit that raises Jesus from the dead is the spirit that lives inside of you. Don't grow weary and faint-hearted, but focus on the Lord who has left his spirit to power your existence. So I don't know, maybe, maybe this is where you can check out today. Maybe you're here and you're in a battle. You're in a fight. You're in a, a storm of life. Maybe what you need to hear today is that you can get through it by focusing on the Lord. Hey, what's the path out of the Lord? Where's my strength, Jesus? How do I do this, the Spirit? And maybe that's all you need to hear, and you could check out for the rest of this. You go, that's all I needed. I just need to know that I can do this that I can do all things, how? Through Christ who strengthens me. I can do this. So maybe that's what you need. But our eyes are on Jesus. Now, what does it say? Now, strive for peace with everyone. That's a big commandment, isn't it? Strive for peace with everyone, how? 
by staying holy. And this, okay, strive for peace with everyone. Try to live, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. That's what the scripture would tell us. This is saying, here's how you do that, by staying holy. What does holiness mean? Set apart. Different. The holy are set apart from the others. So if you're following Jesus, holiness is, I will be set apart. I will look different. I will act different. I will live different. I'm living a holy life, a set apart existence. Jesus is saying, through the scriptures, stay different, people. Don't conform to the world. Hear that in the scripture. Don't conform to the world, but be conformed by a renewing of your mind. Don't conform to the world. And here's why. Stay different is the call. Stay holy is the call. Because we are prone in our culture to practice what I would call a false peace. There's a false peace when we conform to the world. Let's do it this way. All right, everybody, for just a moment, I'm not going to do anything weird, I promise. Um, Hold on to your wallets, but close your eyes for just a minute. Close your eyes for just a minute. Picture your bedroom. That's all I want you to do. Picture your bedroom, wherever you live, apartment. If you just have a bedroom, now your whole apartment. If your house, your mansion, I don't, your houseboat, I don't know where you're living, but picture your bedroom. Okay, and you can open your eyes. You're, you're in your bedroom now. The rest of your house is on fire, but your bedroom is the last place that's going to catch. Okay, so you're in your bedroom, and everything, every exit, every door, everything is on fire, and you're panicking a little bit because everything's on fire. I would say you are at conflict, your bedroom and your existence in your bedroom, you are at conflict with fire at this point, aren't you? Like the fire is a thing, you would like not to have it be a thing, so what we would actually want to do is put the fire out, that's how you could solve the conflict. If I can get rid of the fire, then the whole house is not on fire, not on fire is harmony that's called safe, okay. In our culture, the temptation, and that's not capital C culture, it's not culture war culture, it's our everyday temptation is to resolve conflict in our fire situation by going, I can't seem to resolve the conflict between being holy, set apart in my bedroom, being holy, and everything else happening around me. And because I cannot solve this conflict, because you cannot control the fire, what I'm going to do is light myself on fire. (laughs) Therefore, reducing conflicts, because if I'm on fire too, then I'm at harmony with the rest of the house. A little bit absurd, right? absolutely what we do. I can't seem to get to a place of resolution with this part of what the world says, of this part of what culture says, of this part of what this agenda says. I can't seem to find a way to create resolution there. We are in disharmony, me and this part of the world. And so what I do, instead of staying holy and being okay that it's burning around me, I light myself on fire so at least I don't have to feel the conflict anymore. Now we're at harmony. And all that does is it moves the conflict from an external to an internal. All it does is it takes you from what you know to be true, from what you know and believe, and it takes it from an external conflict between me and the fire to I just light myself on fire. Now it's an internal thing. Now I got to deal with that. There are a lot of ways we acquiesce to the world because we're tired of being in conflict. Conflict fatigued everywhere you go. There's conflict at work, and there's conflict at home, and there's conflict at school, and you turn on the news, and it's conflict, and you turn on social media, and it's conflict, and you're just so tired that you begin to give in to things you wouldn't give in to. You begin to let your holiness subside so that you can just experience a little bit of harmony with somebody, and all it does is burn you. Scripture says, instead, focus on Jesus and strive for holiness, for integrity and faithfulness, for upstream living, for that against-the-grain life 
That's where flourishing is found. How do we do that? He says, you recognize your own brokenness and your need for forgiveness. Pay attention to yourself. Recognize your own need for brokenness and forgiveness. Second, focus your eyes on Jesus, on his work to redeem us. And then finally, we surrender our wrath. We deal with the conflict around us by surrendering our wrath. Biblical forgiveness uses, uh, most often uses the language of financial debt. So when you see Jesus dealing with um, issues of forgiveness, he's most often using language of financial debt. You'll recall that in his Lord's Prayer, Jesus, how do we pray? Forgive us our trespassers as they forgive us, or more accurately, forgive us our debtors as they forgive us. Jesus uses debt language to talk about forgiveness all the time. So, what time is it? 36. 10.33. Anybody hungry? Just, lunch is coming. It's coming soon. Let's think about cheeseburgers for a minute. (laughs) Oh, I mean, guys, you could go home and have a nice pot of legumes, or you can have a cheeseburger. (laughs) Up to you. That is so... Uh, there's a shake. This is from Shake Shack. If you want to go there today, it's about an hour and three minutes up the road. They have one in Ann Arbor. I'll see you there. Okay. Um, you and I go out for cheeseburgers. We're going to cheeseburgers. We love cheeseburgers. We're going to go to Shake Shack. You like the crinkle cut fries. You get them in some certain style that's not on the menu. I'm impressed by you. It's great. We're eating cheeseburgers together. And then the bill comes due. And you go, uh-oh, I don't have my wallet. And I say, ooh. How do you like doing dishes? No, right? And I say, you forgot your wallet, but you do still owe $10 for the burger. And you say, I know, I feel really bad about that, but I don't have the money. And then I say, you owe a debt to the restaurant, don't you? You are now in debt. You owe them a burger's worth of whatever you can come up with. And you don't like that feeling, and you have things to do, and you say, any way you can help. And I go, you know what, I can help you with this. Let me go ahead and pay for this for you. And I give them $20. So my burger is good and your burger is good and you no longer have a debt to the restaurant. What a great day. You got a free burger, didn't you? But it wasn't free, was it? Somebody had to pay. You never get a free burger. You didn't pay, but it doesn't mean it didn't get paid for. Somebody had to pay. Maybe the restaurant comps your burger and you go, oh, free burger. Wrong restaurant paid for your burger. Somebody always pays. The lesson in life is somebody always pays. I paid for you. I got this. Your restaurant debt is cleared, but I had to pay. We would say, I bore the debt. I absorbed the debt, and then I released you from needing to pay. That's how that worked. Jesus would say that debt was forgiven because the cost was born, and you were released from the bondage you would have had. This is biblical forgiveness. Biblical forgiveness is always using debt language. Somebody has to pay the cost of the debt. You absorb the debt of another and then release them from that requirement. So you go back to the words of Jesus. If someone sins against you, he says, first, rebuke them. And that's a tough word for us in English. Rebuke seems like pretty confrontational. It does mean to confront, but it can be as simple as we're having burgers. And I go, hey, man, maybe don't forget your wallet, bro. And you go, oh, okay. Yeah, good point. I probably shouldn't forget my wallet. I've been at lunch with someone recently who got a new wallet. I don't know where he is. I just made eye contact. Um. He's like, ah, I got this new wallet, and I don't keep it in the same place, and it's too big of a wallet, and I sit all crooked, and so I don't have my wallet. I'm like, I'll pay for it. And he Venmo's back, and it's all a thing. But it was that same thing. Like, hey, maybe don't forget your wallet this time. And he goes, oh, leave me alone. I confronted his sin against me. <laughs> He's going to sing here in a minute. I love him so much. Um, 
I won't tell you who it is, though. Um, <laughs> but if you skip the step, if you skip the step of con confrontation, you're skipping justice. We are in this communally. So we live in an individualized society. America's individualized. We are not individuals. We are part of a community. And skipping the step of confrontation is skipping the step of justice. Because I love Greg, and he actually forgot his new wallet because it's weird and wonky, and he's not a front pocket guy, he's a back pocket guy, it's a whole thing. You can ask him later, he'll tell you about it. He's writing a book, it'll be out next year. Um, but if he met people every day for lunch and he always forgot his wallet, that would become a problem in our community. Everybody would be out $10. And so justice says we call out and confront sin in others for the sake of the larger community because we want everyone to be better for each other. So if I am a rampant liar, you would have to call me out. Not because it makes you feel better or me be better. It's because our community doesn't need a liar in the midst. And we need to call that out so that behavior can be corrected and the community can become more whole and holy as a result. And so when we skip the step of confrontation, we skip the step of justice. And we allow sin to go on persisting and we just focus on feelings. Let me just focus on feelings. As long as I feel better and you feel better, it's fine. And Jesus says, no, 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 you've got to rebuke, you've got to call out, you've got to confront. And it doesn't have to be ugly. It can be so loving. But it's going, hey, man, this was wounding to me. Those, hurt, those words hurt me. When you said that thing that wasn't true, that wasn't, that didn't, that's not good. We can't do that. And when you do this in a loving way, 99 times out of 100, somebody goes, ah, yeah, you're right. I'm sorry, I, yeah, I've got to do better. And then you move forward better, as opposed to sweeping it under the rug and just hoping everybody forgets. So he says, first, rebuke. Not so I feel better. I don't feel better when rebuking someone or being rebuked. I don't feel better at all. But it is better. We become better. So then the person acknowledges sin, acknowledges wrong, apologizes, and takes steps to present it. So this is to, to, to fix it. What then is the question? What then? Okay, so we've, got, we've done that step, Jesus. What's next? Forgive. Bear the debt. Refuse that inclination to make them pay for it. I'll forgive you if. I'll forgive you when. Well, that's not, that's not forgiveness of debt. That's a payment plan. And that's different. And we're real good at payment plans in our country, aren't we? Jesus says you absorb the cost. You absorb the cost. You bear the debt. You release the person. And you say, yeah, but I still feel wounded. The words still sting. I'm still out 10 bucks for the cheeseburger. That didn't get fixed. You start to feel resentment rising up again. Ugh. Still feel that, though. Jesus doesn't address your feelings in this. He doesn't address that because it's not what it's about. Someone says, how many times do I forgive? Seven? Seventy times seven? Jesus says, yeah. We're doing this book study on this book called Forgive, and somebody pointed out, one of the, the people in our study pointed out, that she thinks that 70 times 7 isn't about if somebody keeps sinning against you. In her life, it's most often when she revisits that sin in her heart, she has to forgive again and again and again and again. That big, those big wounds, you can forgive and it still stings. And so it bubbles back up and you have an enemy on your shoulder whispering lies. Isn't that wrong? You remember what they did to you? And our job there is to forgive again. 70 times 7, forgive again. And yeah, if it's individual sins and they keep doing it, yeah, 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 we can get into all that. But I thought that was profound. 
that we so often forgive once and try to move on, and then when that whispers up again, 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 again. I've got to bear the debt again. I've got to absorb the cost again. Jesus, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, but it's hard. They deserve wrath. Which brings us back to his words. Pay attention to yourselves. Pay attention to yourselves. So do you. They deserve wrath. What about justice? They got to pay for that. So should you. So do you. Pay attention to yourselves. Know your needs. Know the thing that you're going through. Know the, the sin you've committed. Know the wrongs. Know the brokenness. Know yourself well enough to know that you deserve exactly that. Miroslav Volf says it this way. He says, forgiveness flounders because I exclude my, my, I exclude my enemy from the community of humans even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. Forgiveness doesn't work when we think of ourselves as somehow not in the community of sinners or we think of our offender as somehow not in the community of, of humans with us. We either push them down so they're some subhuman level or we deify ourselves. And that's when we, we become a problem. When I demonize my brother or my sister, uh, they always do this. Or when I operate in the what about meism, but you don't even know what I'm going through. Either of those things will, will subvert forgiveness along the path. Because instead of finding commonality, thinking about ourselves as common with our brother and sister, we begin to find ourselves as different and uncommon with them. Well, they don't know what my experience is. They don't know what they did to me. I'm not doing that anymore. As long as I uphold the delusion and deny that I'm in much in need of mercy as everyone else, I'm going to struggle to forgive. Until I see my need for forgiveness, I'm never going to find the, the strength to forgive others. But once you find it, it changes everything. When you see yourself in light of the cross this week, Good Friday coming up, when you see yourself in light of the cross, it changes everything. Because you recognize what forgiveness can really look like, what it might really cost, what the depths of it could be, what the biggest forgiveness could be. The cross is a picture of God's wrath being poured out. The wrath you deserve, the wrath I deserve is poured out on the person of Jesus. He bore the weight, he paid the price, he absorbed the cost, he took what was deserved for you and I. The scripture would say he descended into hell, receiving the fullness of our punishment, the full separation from God. He experienced it. Jesus surrendered his life to absorb the wrath, to take on your debt. Now, if anyone wants to be my disciple, Jesus says, take up your cross. If anyone wants to be my disciple, take up your cross and follow me. If anyone wants to be my disciple, take up your, as the Father sent me, so send I you. The call of Jesus is a heavy cost associated. If you want to be my disciple, this is what it's going to look like. This is what's going to cost you. This is what it's going to feel like. And that's okay. The call of Christ upon your life is that you might lay your life down for others. That's the call. That you might surrender your wrath. You might bear each other's burdens. You might love sacrificially in a divided world or an offended world or an oversensitive world in your relationships or your workplace or your home. That you would throw off the culture of what about me-ism that you would stop settling for the false peace of conforming to the fire burning around you, that you would fight for the true restoration of hearts, even when it's messier, even when it's costlier, even when it seems like too much for you. Jesus would say, pay attention. Pay attention to your honest need for mercy. We cry out for mercy, and he sees to our need. 
So when those around us cry out for mercy, who are we to withhold it? Keep your eyes on Jesus. He alone is your strength. You cannot do this alone. You cannot do it in your own power. You weren't designed to. So keep your eyes on him as you go about this and then surrender your wrath, which is to seek true peace over and over and over, to find true reconciled wholeness with others by finding common ground at the foot of the cross over and over and over. And then you might know the beauty and the flourishing of what true reconciliation looks like. The picture of the Holy Week is true reconciliation. We are just living in this kind of refractory view of true reconciliation of Jesus who sees the world is broken, who comes to make it whole by taking on the pain and reconciles us to God the Father, reconciles us, builds the bridge back where we are now separated because of our sin. Jesus says, I will be the bridge. I will reconcile you. I will bring you back into relationship with God the Father. It is through my blood. It is through my death. And my resurrection gives you life. And in that moment, we are reconciled with the creator of eternity. And he says, now as I was here to do that, that's your job, to begin to reconcile with others and reconcile them to eternity as well, to begin to speak truth, to do it in love, to do it even when it's hard. That's your job and that's human flourishing. That's your design. That's what you are created for. And so whatever you thought coming in you were created for, it's not that. It's to be reconciled to God and help reconcile others to him. It's to know Jesus and make him known And that's going to take a lot of different shades and a lot of different flavors, and you're going to do it through finance, and you're going to do it through counseling, and you're going to do it through teaching, and you're going to do it through parenting, and all the different ways we get that done. That's the beauty of of the faith, is that there's no shortage of ways to live out your purpose and your calling, but that is your purpose and your calling. And reconciliation is the only place where you find true freedom. And so if it's in a relationship with someone else, with your neighbor, your friend, your spouse, Reconciliation is where freedom occurs, where you go back to living in honest freedom with each other. The same is true with our relationship with God. Reconciliation with God is when we finally get back to an honest freedom to live the way we were created to live. To forgive our debtors as he forgives us on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your forgiveness today, for your proactive acknowledgement of our need, for your proactive acknowledgement of our deficit and our brokenness. Father, we thank you that you saw what we needed and intervened before we could even ask. Father, as we consider your forgiveness and we consider your mercy, Lord, as we ponder in our own hearts and take stock of our own lives and the way that we interact with others, the way that we think about you, Lord, I pray that you would give us a deep heart of mercy from you alone. God, that we would be able to see the brokenness around us and begin to to address it as you would have us address it, to seek justice and wholeness, to seek beauty and flourishing. Father, this week, would you let us experience your forgiveness anew if we need that? Recognize that you have done the work, you've paid the price. When you said it is finished, it's finished. Find us in that finishing phase, living out our purpose for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we continue our worship in the remembrance of of what we just heard, uh, we also want to participate in communion. 
Um, and so for the next uh, couple songs, as the worship team leads us, there's tables across the room. Um, and if you're a follower of Jesus, we and partake um, of communion. You know, we practice this uh, as, as a reminder. We practice it um, knowing that the night Jesus was betrayed, he had one final meal with his disciples. And it was that meal that would be a model of remembrance for the, re- for the rest of church history. That meal had two elements. It was the bread, bread representing Christ's body that was broken for us.